One of the first vacations that Vicki and I took in our married life was one with one of her brothers and his wife. They called me up and said, hey, we'd love to come to California. Love to kind of hang out with you guys, go on a road trip. And I, I thought that'd be great. And Vicki would have thought that would be great too if she actually knew about it. But it was meant to be a surprise. So they wanted to surprise her. I didn't tell her. I was the confederate in their conspiracy. And so my task was to uh, help plan, I think we're going to Tahoe and Yosemite, but I had to create this ruse. And so I said to Vicki that we have, I had two work colleagues that were coming out from the East Coast and they wanted to see California and created effectively this pretty elaborate charade. And so she had to take time off and she had to cancel the paper and buy the chocolates for the places, you know, to honor the host that we were, the homes we were gonna stay at. And on the duly appointed time, we went to the airport to meet my colleagues. Uh, lo and behold, we, Vicky's brother and our sister-in-law popped out. She's like, typical, Vicky, like, what are you doing here? This is such a coincidence. It's like, so the surprise was sprung, and uh, we had a, a marvelous time. Um, I'm thankful for that opportunity. I, I think of it both in terms of the anticipatory joy of being with, with her brother and sister in -law, and our sister-in-law, but also the preparation that was required to pull that off. I don't think I'd do the whole deception thing again because there's something about a surprise that, I don't know, almost feels unchristian if you go to some of the lengths that I've just described. But that idea of joyful anticipation and combined with the idea of preparation is the sense of what Advent is. As we are looking and anticipating the coming of Christ, celebrating it for the first time that he has come, anticipating his coming again as king, this is, the, this is what Advent is meant to bring us into. It's meant to be a time of reflection. It's meant to be a time of joyful anticipation. But there's a serious side to that, and our texts really hone us in on that. I don't know if you found some of the texts sort of jarring, but they're, they're a lot about accountability. They're a lot about, hey, it's time to get right with God. This is Malachi, this is the Corinthians text, and this is certainly the gospel text where Luke is introducing us to John the Baptist. And his message is anything but, hey, Advent's coming, Jesus, I mean, his, his message is Jesus is coming, but sort of his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he is coming as, as judge. And so I, I just, it's such a jarring change. Luke is, is writing in chapter two of, of the angels that appear to to the shepherds, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. These are some of the phrases that we associate with Advent and with Christmas. We don't associate the phrases that we heard read by Cindy, that John speaks, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Maybe we should put that on a Christmas card, see, see what that does. But, but he wants us to really understand an essential part of what it means for the Lord to be coming and what it means for us. Because the, the text of Luke 3 is really uh, John's first sermon, if you will. And it's a revival sermon. The, the scene is that, that people are streaming to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. There is a revival going on. And they are people that are in the power centers. They are people who 
are at the, the top of the food chain. They are tax collectors and they're Roman soldiers. They're people with power and with ability and with means. And they're coming because they want to get right with God. It's not just them, it's the rulers. In other accounts, it's the rulers of the uh, Israelites that are also coming. There's something going on here. And they're, they don't, they want to be right with the Lord. So this is a revival. And John's first words are, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the coming wrath. And then he extends that to, to be very clear about what it means to come to the Lord. We don't come with just kind of a, a smile and not willing to do business. We come as, as people who've been so far apart from him for ye- in, in the case here for years. But even us as believers, we are aware of times and places and situations and zones that we find ourselves in that just are more distant than we would like them to be. And thankfully, the Lord isn't calling us a brood of vipers, but he is wanting us to be um, repentant. It is a time to reflect on the command that John gives, those that are coming to him, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. It's a time to lay bare all the excuses that we use not to do so. John calls out the, the Israelites who are coming. He says, don't say that you can have Abraham as your God. God can make you know, children out of stones. Your, your pedigree isn't going to save you. So John is very much emphasizing what it means to be, John the Baptist, to be prepared to receive the Lord, to do business with him. It's interesting that there's something going on so that the, the tax collectors are asking, what do we have to do? So I hear you, John, what do I have to do to repent? And John says, okay, don't collect more than you're supposed to. There's a certain tax rate. You just collect that, no extras. The soldiers come and they ask, what should we do? And he says, don't use your power over those that are powerless. Don't press your advantage. There are legal things that a Roman soldier could do or require of a Jewish citizen. Stay with that. Don't use it as a practice of extortion. And so John is speaking very specifically into ways that their life can reflect repentance. It's interesting that the dialogue is between John and those that are in need of repentance. It's, we don't hear from the people that actually were hearing this. The, those that actually heard this dialogue as good news for them. But if you were somebody who, were get, who was getting cheated in your taxes, you came in with your 20% requirement and they tack on to 10, 15, 20% extra, you're feeling cheated. And to have John the Baptist say that, you know, come before Christ and said, here's somebody essentially be preaching the arrival of the Messiah, you think this is good news because these guys aren't going to get away with it any longer. And if you've been oppressed by the Roman soldiery on a regular basis and you're way past time of being tired of occupiers in your land, you think this is great news as well. And we can find, if we're honest, we can connect with that, that sense of when the Messiah comes, there is good news for each of us. That the things that have happened to us or are happening to us that have been not dealt with, not reconciled, not addressed, continue to go on, people aren't going to get away with those things. 
That's actually good news. We don't know when the time of reckoning comes, but it will come. And that should, that should fill us with some delight. That allows us to say to the Lord, you take care of it. I'm going to be at peace because I know you've got it handled at some point. I don't know when, but you will handle it. There will be a time where, as N.T. Wright says, everything will be put to rights. That's good. That's good news for us. And we can identify in certain situations where, that, where we fit in that. But if we're really candid, we can also identify with the soldiers and the tax collectors. We know there are times where we use what we've been given to lord it over somebody else. It may not be money or it could be that. It may not be power, but it could be that. It could be our own mind, our own intellect. We think we're better than somebody for some reason. And we, we don't reflect the love of the Lord, but we reflect our agenda in some way. The, the fact is that this text today finds us as members of both groups. And so we can rejoice that, that the king is coming to put the world to rights, but we also want to prepare, as the soldiers did and as the tax collectors did, to, for his coming, for the sober side of that. To, as St. Augustine says, to reorder our, our loves. St. Augustine said his, his idea of why people fall into sin is that they have disordered loves. That, that in God's economy, it's the first commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But the other loves that we have, love of, and in his case, he was a gifted philosopher and a rhetorician and a teacher and, you know, a story a bit, a bishop, leader in the church, a theologian. He could use those for his own reputation if he chose that. And he would call that, if that was the case, a disordered love. Or you might be blessed with a certain wealth or a certain gift, a certain level of intellect. And those are, those are fine. Those are gifts of God at some level. But if they become a means by which we are feeling better than ourselves or good about ourselves and better than other people, they have become disordered. Tim Keller writes about this and he says, um, as an example, he says, there's nothing wrong with loving your work, but if you love it more than your family, then your loves are out of order. And in fact, if they stay out of order, you, you may end up ruining your family. If you love making more money, uh, making, if you love money more than you love justice, then you are liable to exploit your employees, again, because your loves are disordered. So there are a variety of ways that we let these things get disordered. And the message from the, the gospel, but from the other readings as well, is that we're called in preparation of the return of Christ to get our lives back in, in alignment with his gospel, with his truth. We are called, as John calls the tax collectors and soldiers, to repent. Now, we don't necessarily repent as we first did to receive the grace of God for salvation. But in order to stay connected or to have our loves ordered in the right way, there's a continual process of repenting, of turning away from what has become disordered and allow the Lord through his spirit to reorder us. And when we repent, when we actually change our mind about things and when we let that change our actions, then you will see it in that fruit that produces repentance, the fruit that John was talking about. The whole idea of this time is to, to think about, to use Advent 
in preparation for the Lord's return to say, Lord, where do I need to repent? Where do I need to turn from affections that have grown too big? They've grown out of order. Sometimes we don't know it until things become actionable, until they become actually in front of us. I was thinking uh, in my tech days, my early tech days, there, was, uh, there wasn't a stock option in sight. I was too junior, the company was too big, you just didn't have any of that. But as I got more experience and I joined smaller companies who couldn't compensate beyond a certain level, they, they threw stock options. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, this has huge potential. This is, what, what would I do with this? This, is, this became, I didn't have to worry about it until it was now in front of me. And now then the question became, well, Lord, how does this honor you? How do I make this not become about me? How do I not kind of use this as a little scorecard for my life or just a broader smile in the next party that I go to because I've got options. There are all kinds of things that once they present themselves, that diploma that comes up, that promotion that comes up, that accolade that you receive, these now can be, they have the potential of disordering our loves. And if there ever is a time where that's the case, then we need to, to repent and to say, Lord, I need to, be, I need to let your spirit reorder me, reorder my heart. If you're not sure what they are or might be in your life, here's a, here's a little hint. Look at where you're getting angry or anxious. These can be helpful canaries in whatever coal mine you may find yourself in. But anger usually is a reaction to somebody who's trying to reorder my loves. And anxiety can often be a fear of losing something that I'm really wanting to hang on to. But as we come into the presence of Christ, there's less room for anger because I'm not talking about justifiable anger. God, Jesus got angry and for the appropriate reason, so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the things that the, the things that we find as irritations or the things that we find are assaults or uh, some denigration of who we are. Something that our ordered world is, somebody's wanting to take or wrestle that away from us. We can respond angrily or we can respond with anxiety. What if this happens? To repent in this context is to say, Lord, I just want to draw closer to you. To realize that because of what you've done for me, where is there, what need, what do I actually lack that you don't already have covered? What, are, what, are, what is my concern for the future that somehow I think I need to do it all myself without your help or that you're not going to help me or that you don't have a plan? It's hard trying to outthink God. Like, what if this happens and that doesn't happen? If I, I, I'm a little, speaking a little autobiographically. I can get a little focused on things historically about, well, if this happens and I got to plan that. And as I've said in probably previous messages, that has a certain utility. It's just not super, <laughs> super reflective of being a child of God. So anger and anxiety can be ways to, to just say, Lord, help me understand where I need to focus my attention during this time of, of Advent, where I need to repent. Remember that the closer we get to God, the more he'll reveal things. But we just got to come to him with, with honesty. Don't be afraid. Um, don't, don't do a cursory, like, Lord, okay, I'm, I got 15 minutes of examination. Hit me. And then if nothing happens. You know, it's a patient walk with him. 
But don't be afraid to let, to let him look behind the facade and say, this is what's going on. This is something that needs attention. I was thinking, of, uh, I was just thinking about this. You know, the, the term Potemkin village is, a, is in our lexicon these days. It actually comes from uh, somewhat, depending on what historian you're looking at, but a, either a legend or a fact. One of Catherine the Great's ministers of Russia, minister in the late 18th century, was a guy named Grigory Potemkin. And she was uh, wanting to take a six-month tour to look at her new acquisition, what we call Crimea today. And uh, he arranged the whole thing. But he didn't want her to see these poor, run-down, dilapidated, empty villages that were torn by strife and everything else. And so he essentially created mobile villages, facades that were brightly painted and put up and could easily be assembled along the riverbank so that as her barge passed by, she could see how wonderful it looked. And then if she stopped, then he would flood it with friendly villagers who were also fairly mobile, and she would have this wonderful Im image of what her realm looked like. And then, you know, when she went back to the barge or what have you, they'd pack up everything and move down to the next location. This has become a term to use for something that is not real, something that appears real on the outside, but you don't have to look very far behind to see that there's something that isn't being addressed. So as we think about being into this place of, Lord, help me prepare for your coming. Help me to be real with who I am. Help me to understand by your spirit where my loves are disordered. Lord, help me not just erect this facade to say, hey, this, isn't this wonderful? Really get behind that and show me what I need to see. When you allow the Lord to do that, he will change the things that you're hanging on to that aren't of him. Luke, later on, we're, we've been in Luke 3, but in chapter 18, he talks about a chief tax collector, somebody who gets this message, somebody who wants to see Jesus. Zacchaeus gets up in a tree, and the presence of the Lord and the regard of the Lord and the invitation of the Lord that says, I want to stay in your house. It's like, there's all the stuff that he was grabbing onto. It's like, I, I'm giving it away four times. I, if, if I've defrauded anybody, and, and Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. This, the, Zacchaeus is repenting with his actions. His repentance is known by his actions. And his actions are prompted by the presence of God. And so, in this Advent, let us embrace the call to repent of things that are disordered. Let us find the rest that comes from that. In repentance and rest, says Isaiah, is your salvation. Amongst the celebration, amongst the joyful anticipation, comes preparation. And the, that is just letting go of the things that do hinder us and the things that do slow us down and the things that prevent us from understanding his true love. May this Advent be a particularly special one of drawing closer to the Lord. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.